All right, why don't we get started with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in this morning. So let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, another beautiful morning, uh, cooler weather, and just this time of year, fall, the leaves changing, Lord, just a reminder of your faithfulness to us in the changing seasons. And uh, we pray you just bless our day today, uh, be with our study this morning, give us wisdom, give us insight from your word. We pray we would come to your word uh, without our preconceived notions and just seek to let your word speak to us and uh, observe the world that you've created through the lens of your word. So God, we just pray you bless our time up here. We pray for uh, the youth that are meeting downstairs, different groups, that you bless uh, their discussion as they look at your word. We pray for our equipped classes with the kids and that things would go well there, that they would learn. Uh, and, and as they're learning about creation as well, that would just be a, a foundational thing for them. And God, we pray for our service, that you'd bless uh, just the worship service with our singing, our worship to you in song, uh, but also the preaching of your word. And as we uh, listen and hear from your word, that you would just challenge our hearts and help us to live out the truths that we learned this morning. And we even pray for our, uh, equip, or for our uh, kids club tonight, for our youth group at the community center, that you'd bless that. Help us as we share the gospel, as we minister to uh, kids of all ages up through teenagers. So, Lord, just bless the day. May you be glorified in our midst today, uh, no matter what we're doing. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we had a little break last week because we were at the park. So we're picking back up, and as you see there on the screen, we're going to cover more verses today than we've covered thus far in our study. We've had three weeks where we did some introductory stuff and uh, talked about some of the background of Genesis, uh, the author being Moses, the time frame in which it was written, uh, things like that. It, it's to be taken as history. It's a narrative, clearly, as you see the history at the later portions of Abraham and all that, really the whole of the book is meant to be taken as, as historical and therefore as, uh, as literally as possible, right? Um, we talked about verse 1 and just the incredible, that incredible verse, how it's so simple and yet so profound when it comes to the truths it reveals about who God is, how he's created his power. Um, we talked last week or two weeks ago about verse 2. Um, and we see God beginning to uh, create here uh, after he's spoken everything into creation, the material we're going to see in these next several verses, him shaping that, um, filling that with inhabitants. And so we talked about a couple weeks ago the gap theory, the theory that looks at verse 2 and tries to cram uh, billions of years between verse 1 and verse 2 and look at verse 2 in the way, the means of there must have been some kind of cataclysmic judgment that caused uh, earth to be in this shape, but we talked about how that's really reading into the text and not taking it at face value and some of the issues there, okay? So this morning, we're going to look at verses 3 through 5, which concludes the first day. What we've said so far is verses 1 through 5 are all in the course of this first day, okay? And we're going to talk about a couple other theories that people have in regards to um, the days of creation and the time frame uh, and how some people still try to fit millions or billions of years into this creation account, okay? So let me share, we're going to talk about three uh, as we work through this morning. And so I'm going to tell you the name of it, and you kind of tell me what you think this theory might suggest, okay? The first one, probably the most common when it comes to uh, the different days of creation, is called the day-age theory. Anybody know, what do you think the day-age theory suggests? 
Any ideas? Brian? <clears throat> okay. Yep. So the days aren't literal days, as in 24-hour days. The days are ages that could be millions or billions of years. Okay? Yeah, absolutely. So the age theory would look at each day and say, well, this is an age that God was creating, God was working, and then after that age, another age, so on and so forth, okay? Um, there's also one called the literal day with gaps theory. Not, I haven't heard of this one as much, but you can imagine what this is. Literal days with gaps theory. What do you think this is? Okay, so yeah, they, they would look at each day mentioned here and say, well, yeah, this is a literal day, and we're going to see why in the text you would want to lean toward a literal day. But there must have been gaps between. So day one, God creates light and darkness, and then there's millions of years or billions of years, and then day two, he creates the next thing and so on and so forth, okay? The third one is called the revel revelatory day theory. Any idea as to what that might be posing as a theory? The revelatory day theory. Doesn't give it away as much in the title. This one I haven't heard of as much either, but this theory suggests that the days mentioned in Genesis are literal days, but that they're days in the life of Moses as God revealed creation to him. Okay? So when Moses is writing, and there was evening, there was morning the first day, what, he's, what they're suggesting is that this is what God revealed to him in that day of his life, that he created light and darkness and created everything. Then day two, God revealed this about creation, okay? So they're not literal days of creation, but days in the life of Moses as God reveals creation, okay? I want to read this quote. I thought this was well said by uh, one of the commentators, R. Kent Hughes. Um, if you're in the men's study, he's the one that wrote Disciplines of a Godly Man as well. He's got a commentary on Genesis, and he says this, and he, prior to this, he lists several names, those who are evangelicals, solid men, who have different views when it comes to Genesis 1. And he says this, it is therefore an established fact that godly, scripture-loving people who have given their lives to God's word have differed over the opening verses of the Bible. What they have not differed on is the utter truth of God's word, and that the Genesis accounts are factual and historical. Neither have they differed over the historicity of Adam and Eve as special creations of God and the truth of the fall. This ought to give, a, give pause to those who employ a particular view of creation as a litmus test for orthodoxy. Furthermore, the remarkable diversity of the major views of the six days ought to make us cautious and humble in our judgments. Okay, So I thought that was well said. And so as we walk through this, I, you know, even a couple weeks ago as we looked at the gap theory, you know, I want you to know that, that I am definitely expressing what my view as we look at Scripture, as we seek to hear from Scripture, teaches. Um, but I want to try to do so in a humble way, to recognize there are other men that are well-learned, that, that, that hold dearly to God's Word, that might have a little bit of a different view, okay? So I want to put that out there, even as we walk through, and as I'm going to share why I believe these other views are wrong. I want to do so in a humble manner, not as a way of saying... And I try to do that with the gap theory. Look, if you hold to that theory, if you hold to these theories, it doesn't mean you aren't saved or you're not orthodox, things like that. That's not to say I don't think that these 
these truths are important, but I want to do so in a humble way and to allow God's word to speak and allow for some difference of view, okay? So let's try to humbly walk through this, these verses, and we'll walk through why I think some of these ideas are erroneous, okay, in my view, okay? So first, verse 3, let me just read verses 3 through 5, so we, and actually I'm going to go back to verse 1 so we see the full context, so verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Okay, so here we see the first day of God's creation in its full. Okay, so verse three, and these verses are a lot more straightforward. We don't have to, when verses one and two, there were a lot of words that we wanted to break down and understand what is the meaning of that. Not as much here. There is one word we're going to key in on today, but it's pretty straightforward. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Okay, it's as straightforward as it gets. The earth was without shape uh, or inhabitants. We talked about that without form or void. It's shapeless. There's no inhabitants. It's covered in darkness. There's darkness hovering over the face of the deep. And so God speaks, let there be light, and it happens, right? God just uses his words to create light. And I like the way John Phillips put it. God's words are not only legislative, okay, that would be words that someone would say that, okay, that's the law, we're to obey it. They are executive. So when God says something, it happens. That's what we see here. When God speaks, it happens. Um, R. Kent Hughes says it like this. His only tool was his word, the revelation of his will. And God said his speech. That is all. In creating everything through his word, God's thought shaped itself exactly to the least cell in Adam. The vast universe was shaped by his thought and will as was each of the trillions of cells in our body each cell's nucleus containing a coded database larger in information content than all 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. There is such intimacy and immediacy in his knowledge and the willing of creation that he might say he knows each aspect of creation by experience. I thought that was well said, that God speaks, and yet even on the atomic level, there's so much information, there's so much there, that God knows and that God speaks and that God creates. It just shows us how amazing God is, how powerful, how uh, omniscient God truly is. So in the simplicity of this verse, we see the power of God's voice, the sovereignty of his will, what he desires is accomplished, and even that intimacy, the intimacy of his nature, that he's so familiar, he knows his creation. Okay, Look at verse 4. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. Okay, so here we see the first of several moral proclamations. Okay, throughout Genesis 1, what you see is God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Over and over again, as he creates, he then looks at his creation, he sees that it is good. It is useful, it is purposeful to what he wants to accomplish, it is good. So this is a moral proclamation, right? Who can call something good other than the ultimate standard of what is good? Right. Even if, if we got back on a philosophical level, and we talk about people that want to argue for the existence of God. 
well, how can there be? And, and a lot of times they'll argue that why is there evil in the world if there's a good God? Well, the presence of evil means the presence of good and a standard by which we can deem things good and evil. And so clearly this is evidence of God. God is that ultimate standard of what is good. And so we see his proclamation, this moral proclamation that creation is good, that light and darkness specifically here is good. Specifically light is what's mentioned as good. Okay? So over and over again, God, as he's creating, pronounces that it is good. Okay? And here's one of the issues that I have with trying to fit millions of years, either between Genesis 1 and 2 or in the, the days, um, is that how can, as we think about the reason that people do this, is to try to fit the fossil record, the geological timetable into Scripture. How can God, and we know that would be a record of years, millions of years of struggle, of pain, of death, how can God look upon that and say it is good, right? That, that's one of the biggest issues I have, that the fossil record, as people would view it, is millions and billions of years of death and pain and struggle, and yet God is throughout this looking and saying, but it's good, okay? That's one of the issues I think we see with this idea, okay? Death certainly does not fit with God's original intention prior to Adam's sin. And when God creates the new heaven and the new earth, what we'll see when we look at Revelation is that uh, these things are not going to be present anymore. Death, pain, tears, those sort of things, okay? We talked about Romans 5.12 when it came to the gap theory, and I think it speaks to these theories as well, that Scripture clearly teaches, Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all, all have sinned. So, Scripture, the New Testament, seems very clear that death is a specific result of Adam's sin. That death came into the world because of Adam's sin. And yet, to hold these views is prior to Adam's sin is to say that death actually came before Adam's sin. And again, we then have to say, well, then what is? God said, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. But if death was already in existence, why would that be a punishment, okay? And what was the punishment for his sin, if that's the case? Romans 8, 18 through 23, I think, sheds more light on this, okay? So listen to this. And this, this talks about how Adam's sin not only affects mankind, but affects all of creation, okay? Romans 8 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be re revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So here's the creation waiting, longing, in a sense, kind of personified creation, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the picture here is creation was subjected to futility. Why? Because of Adam's sin, because of his fallen nature. And through redemption, through what Christ has done in coming, living a life that Adam didn't live, 
uh, redeeming us, rising from the dead, and then the future hope that we have of that ultimate restoration, the creation is longing for that moment where things are set right, where the, the full reality of redemption is experienced. And we see that in Revelation 21.4, where it says, He will wipe away, this is Revelation 21 talking about the new heaven and the new earth. Okay? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So Scripture seems to clearly teach death, corruption to creation, everything we experience um, that is evil is a result of Adam's sin. Okay, And through God's full purpose of redemption and allowing Christ to come and die, there's this future reality, this future hope that one day God is going to create a new heaven, a new earth, He's going to redeem those who put their faith in Christ and death will be no more. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. That's the future hope we have, which seems to be, again, pointing back to his original intention. Okay, Which, again, the re- even redemption is part of God's original intention as he creates. But we're not going to unpack all that uh, this morning. So you see God's intention from the beginning, how Adam's sin derails that uh, in a way. It's, it's, again, along with God's sovereign will. Adam's not doing anything... Uh, that goes against God's sovereignty, but you see the restoration of what God originally intended with this perfect new heaven, new earth, okay? Um, So, verse 4, he saw the light was good, separated the light from the darkness, okay? Any questions about these first two verses? We're going to spend a little more time on verse 5, but any questions on verses 3 and 4 before we move on? All right, verse 5, this is where we're going to have some more conversation. I'll ask some questions as we think through this, okay? It's God's spoken light into existence. He's pronounced that the light is good. He's separated the light from darkness. And then verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day, okay? So God names the light and darkness. Light is day, darkness called night. This is an action done by someone that has dominion, which we're going to see in chapter 2 is given to Adam as, as he gives Adam dominion over everything in the earth. What's his responsibility? Name all the animals, right? So we see God, of course, having dominion as the creator over light and darkness as he gives them a name. Okay? So as we think about this, God called the light day, the darkness he called night, pretty straightforward. But here's where we want to key in, and this is after each creative day. There was evening, and there was morning the first day, which could be translated evening and morning, day one, is what it really could literally be translated. Day one, it's a number. So let me, let's back up, and let's talk a little bit about what is time, and what is, how do we measure time, things like that, okay? This will help us as we think through this. So first of all, what is a year? Someone asked you, what is a year, a child that maybe hasn't learned? How would you define what a year is? Okay, it's 365 days. We're going to ask the question, what is a day, in a minute. But we don't, let's say we don't have that reference point. What is, a, what is a year if we're not using days? We don't have that reference point. Okay. Yes. Yeah, if we, if we back up on, an, I guess, an astronomical level, it's the amount of time it takes for the Earth to make one trip around the sun, right? 
which is 365 and a quarter roughly days. That's why we have a leap year every four years, right, to make up for that quarter of a day we've lost, okay? So 365 and a quarter days, that's how long it takes Earth to go around the sun one time, okay? Um, What is a month? And this is a little tricky because our month is a little different than uh, some cultures' month and the Jewish month, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. So we've divided up, you know, our, our calendar has divided up months and just, I don't know if there's really much of a reason. We just, I think, divided it by 12 and, you know, we've got some months that have 28 days like February, except for leap year, and then some that have 30 or 31, right? But if you think about the Jewish culture, how, how were their months measured? How were their months measured? Anybody know? Okay, so, so there is a, of course, the week uh, basis that God lays out in creation is their basis. Yeah, the, they had a, more of a lunar calendar, okay? So again, astronomical level, this is how long, I think the moon is, it's like 20, what is it, 20, I, I should have looked this up, 28, 29, however many days for the moon to make a full phase, right? So to go from a full moon all the way back around to a full moon again, Okay. So that's roughly what, as we think about a month, we know we use the moon in some ways to calculate that, okay? So now let's talk about what is a day. What is a day in an astronomical level? We would say 24 hours, but let's say we don't have the reference point of hours. What is a day in an astronomical sense? Okay, light and dark, which is caused by what? The sun, but something else. Light from the sun, but there's got to be something else in play for us to have a, a light and dark. Why is it not daylight all the time? There are places on earth that are that way for a certain season, but there's a reason why, let's say the equator, that never happens. Rotation, right. So the earth is, that's how long it takes the earth to rotate on its axis to get back to the starting point. 24 hours is one day, okay, from starting point to rotate so that the sun is back where it was before. And that's why it's, it's of course, on an axis. So when it's tilting in a certain season, there's parts of the earth that are up north in the summer. You know, like I went to Iceland, and it was daylight all but two hours when we were there in the summer because it's tilted on its axis, so it's pointing at the sun longer. And then as, as the seasons shift, that changes, right? Okay, so then let me ask this question, okay? We're, I want, I, I'm doing this to get us thinking through just the basics of what is time, what is a day, what is... This is all pertinent to this first day as we think about a day. So how is it possible for there to be a 24-hour day in days 1, 2, and 3 before the creation of the sun, moon, and stars? We see in verse um, in day 4, verse 14, God, saw, or God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. 
So it's not till day four that God actually creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, and he gives the reason for them so that we have, you know, seasons and we have these reference points to track days and all those sort of things. So how is it possible for there to be a 24-hour day in days one, two, and three of creation before God created the sun, moon, and stars? You have what? Yep. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, so you need rotation. Okay, so there's, yeah, there's two, really two, two ingredients we could say. Rotation is one to have a day. You have to have rotation to be able to track evening and morning. We know that's the case by the end of verse 5, because there's an evening and a morning, okay? So we can clearly tell there's rotation. Now, where did that rotation start? We could look back at verse 2, and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. We talked about that movement that's created, maybe waves, different uh, uh, energy waves, things like that are put into motion. Maybe this is when that earth, that formless kind of watery substance of the earth starts to revolve. But whatever, whatever the case, it happens before the end of verse 5. There's got to be rotation for there to be an evening and a morning. There's got to be one other thing, okay? Not, not necessarily a sun, but something, something else to have. If you have rotation, we have an earth, right? We have earth because verse 1 mentions earth. So you have earth and you have rotation of that earth. There's got to be one other thing. <laughs> we would say absolutely. Not wind, per se. Okay? You're, I think you're on the right thought, but not necessarily something to orbit, because the orbit around the sun is what gives us like a year, but something else. There's got to be, and we see it created in these verses, 3 through 5. What does God create in verse 3? Light. And really, you have to have a singular light source. Okay? Um, and we see that. There's light. And there's darkness, right, which speaks to there's some source of light that's shining on the earth. Because if light's just in existence all over, you don't have an evening and a morning, right? We took a globe in here with the lights all around. We wouldn't have a dark side of that globe and a light side, right? But if we turned all the lights out and we had a big light beam, we would have a dark side to that globe and a light side. And as we spin it, there'd be evening and morning. So you need a singular light source, okay, um, which... Today is the sun, right? God's created the sun on day four to be that singular light source by day. The moon is a reflection of the sunlight for night. You have stars, but they're not enough to you know, really shine light in a powerful way on earth, okay? So you have to have a singular light source and a rotating earth, which, again, seems to be very clear here. God's created light. He separated light from darkness, which probably is speaking to the separation of light and darkness from an earthly perspective, okay? Um, and so there's rotation and there's a singular light source, okay? So there's debate as to what could this light source be. Um, some would say maybe this is God himself. Revelation 22.5, um, again, speaking to the future realities of the new heaven and new earth, night will be no more. They will need no light or, uh, of lamp or sun. So there's no need of sun in the future. Why? For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever, okay? 
but God's existed since before light came. So it seems as though God in creating light is creating some form of light source. And then in day four, he's creating the sun to be the host of that source. Does that make sense? Just like we've talked about, God is creating the material. It's without shape and it's without inhabitants. And then he begins creating the domain. Okay, so the domain of light. And now who's the one that has dominion over light? The sun is the primary one, the moon and the stars. Okay, so this seems pretty, pretty straightforward to me. Now, are these literal 24-hour days in verses, in, in days 1, 2, and 3? Uh, I don't see a need to say they're not, but I can't dogmatically say they are because there's no sun, right? But here's the thing. Um, some would maybe, and, and there may be some views that don't want to make every day longer. They would say, well, once God created the sun, then those are literal 24-hour days. But we still can't fit the fossil record and geology into this, right? Why? Why couldn't we, why couldn't we hold the position, well, days one, two, and three aren't literal 24-hour days. Maybe they were billions of years. But why can we still not fit the fossil record and geological timetable, which are tied together? Why can't we cram that into the first three days of creation? Yeah, there's no... He's not created any living creatures. So we can't cram, okay, they must all die here. Well, there's no record of them being created, and they're not created till after the sun, moon, and stars. Um, you know, we see fish and birds created on day five and land animals and human beings created on day six, right? Okay, so still, we, we still have an issue, okay? Yes. Uh, I just think it's what Scripture, Scripture's not telling us that they're necessarily literal 24-hour days, but we're going to talk about the text and, and what it says here and how to translate that word, yom, and I'm not trying to suggest that I don't think they're 24-hour days. I don't think there's a need to say they're anything more than 24-hour days, but maybe day one you know, in, in God's timetable, maybe it wasn't exactly 24-hour days, but I don't see a need to say it's millions or billions of years either, okay? So I hold to, yeah, I think they're straightforward days. They're days as God intended them to be. Um, but again, you know, yes, and we're good transition because we're just about to talk about that. So, yeah, the debate really comes down to that word, and that's where we're going to to this word, the word yom, okay, is the word translated day, okay? Now, let me ask this. In English, very similar to, to Hebrew, the word day, what are some different meanings that day can have in English? What are some different meanings that day can have in English? Yes. Okay, a period of time. Back in my day, we used to do this. You're not saying back in a literal 24-hour day, you're, back in my day when I was a kid, you know, this time frame, you're talking about an extended period of time, right? Absolutely. What else can day mean in English? What's the most obvious one? Day. Huh? Well, birthday is a day, right? It's a 24-hour day, right, that marks the 
day you were born, right? So a, a literal 24, what we call a solar day, right? The time it takes for the earth to revolve. So a literal 24-hour day, a, a period of time back in my day, uh, in this day and age, whatever. Uh, but there's one more. We, see, we actually see it referenced in verse 4. Uh, or actually, sorry, verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. We refer to this time of the day as day, right? Uh, I'll be out there before the end of the day. What we mean is before, really, before it gets dark, right? So we're talking about the cycle of when it's light, okay? And we see this same uh, usage in the Hebrew. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see references to each of these meanings, okay? Verses four, look at verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and to be for signs and seasons. So what is this usage of day? Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. What does this day mean in the context? Yeah. Right. The daytime when it's light outside versus the dark. So it's that usage of day. How do we know that? The context is clear. Very clear, okay? Um, verse 14 also mentions, um, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. What usage of days is that in the second part of verse 14? It's a literal 24-hour day, right? So, uh, separate the day from night. Why? So that we'll have days and years. 24-hour days, 365 and a quarter years, right? So they're, they're markers to know when it's been a day, when it's been a year, okay? And then look at chapter 2, verse 4. We see another usage of day, okay? Chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So what is that usage of the word day? Chapter 2, verse 4. Huh? Yeah. In the day that God made them. What is that day referring to? Period of time. Right. S specifically, six creative days, seven that he rested, okay? So it's referring to a period of time. Okay, an account. Okay. I think, I'm pretty sure it's still the same word, yom. It's just they're probably trying to be more clear and this is a, extended period of time, okay? So you see it used in different ways, the same Hebrew word throughout. So some people would say, see, uh, it's used multiple ways, and so that's a reason to say, you know, we talked about this with interpretation. We've got the semantic range of what yom can mean. It can mean 24 hours. It can mean the period of time where it's light. It can mean extended period of time. But then what determines which way we, which, uh, way we interpret it. What's always the key to interpreting a word? Context. Context is always key. Not just saying, well, if I use this interpretation, then I can make it mean this. It's what is clearly the context teaching us. Just like when we read through those passages, it was clear. The context is saying, this is the period of light, this is the period of darkness. This is a 24-hour day, this is an extended period of time, whatever it may be, okay? So here's uh, I want to read this. This is directly from uh, a family commentary that Ken Ham's written. 
that Pastor Justin let me borrow, Creation to Babel. So it's a commentary for uh, kids, for families. Um, and so this is from that that Ken Ham wrote. So to understand the meaning of day in Genesis 1, we need to determine how the Hebrew word for day, which is yom, is used in the context of Scripture. So here's some other context where we see the word yom. And, and we see it, what we're going to look at as he walks through this, is that key phrase, there was evening and there was morning, day one, literally, is what it says. So, a typical Hebrew dictionary will illustrate that yom can have a range of meanings. It can mean a period of light as contrasted to night, a 24-hour period, time, a specific point of time, or a year. A classic, well-respected Hebrew-English dictionary, Brown Driver Briggs, has seven headings and many subheadings for the meaning of yom, but it defines the creation days of Genesis 1 as ordinary days under the heading day as defined by evening and morning. Okay, so now let's look at some other passages of Scripture. Um, we're not going to look at these, but just going to read the context of how this word is interpreted in other places. A number and the phrase evening and morning are used with each of the six days of creation. So evening and morning, each of the six days of creation, and a number. So day one, day two, day three. Okay. Outside of Genesis 1, yom is used with a number 410 times. So if we look at other passages in Scripture where yom is used with a number, each time it means an ordinary day. And so he says, why would Genesis 1 be the exception? 410 other times, yom is used with a number, and it always means a literal 24-hour day. Outside of Genesis 1, yom is used with the word evening or morning 23 times. Evening and morning appear in association, but without yom, 38 times. All 61 times the text refers to an ordinary day. Why would Genesis 1 be the exception? In Genesis 1-5, yom occurs in context with the word night. Outside of Genesis 1, night is used with yom 53 times, and each time it means an ordinary day. Why would Genesis 1 be the exception? Even the use of the word light with yom in this passage determines the meaning as an ordinary day. The plural of yom, which does not appear in Genesis 1, can be used to communicate a longer period of time, such as in those days. Adding a number here wouldn't make sense, but in Exodus 20.11, where a number is used with days, it refers, it's referring to the six earth rotation days of the creation week. There are words in the biblical Hebrew, such as olam and uh, quadam, that are very suitable for communicating long periods of time or indefinite time, but none of these words are used in Genesis 1. So then he concludes, from the meaning of the word for day in Hebrew and how it's used in Genesis 1 for each of the six days of creation, it is very clear they are six ordinary days, and he says this, I like this, of approximately 24 hours each. Okay, So we can't be so dogmatic that, no, it absolutely couldn't have been 25 hours. Again, God's creating, things are starting, but we definitely can't fit millions and billions of years and death and fossils into this period of time and be true to God's word in my opinion okay so evening and morning day one is what it says okay so we see I mean we could step back and say if God wanted to communicate to us clearly that he created earth in six literal 24-hour days what words would he use and we would say this is what he this is how it would be phrased if we step back and said if God wanted to communicate to us that he created in extended periods of time we would probably say well this word probably would have been better, this word would have been better. So taking it at face value, it seems very clear that an ordinary day is what God's 
suggesting here, okay? So, um, again, this, you, you mentioned, Roger, how can we know the meaning? Again, evening, morning, a number, everywhere else in Scripture is referring to a literal day, okay? So, again, there are normal days. There's some sort of light source. There's some kind of rotation to create evening and morning. Um, we talked about Revelation 22. Night will be no more. They'll need no light or sun. The Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever. So we just need a singular light source, not necessarily a sun. And even as we look at Scripture, again, we, when we talked about interpretation, you always want to, what's the best commentary for Scripture? Does anyone remember? Scripture is the best commentary for Scripture. So we always want to compare Scripture with Scripture. So how does another place in Scripture interpret these days? Well, Exodus 20, 11 says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Exodus, again, is clearly saying in six days, this is the structure of our weekly calendar to this day. Why do we have seven days in a week? Because of the creation account. And Moses is saying, why do we have a seven-day week? Why do we rest on the Sabbath? Because God created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. Okay? So it seems very clear that it's dogmatically saying God created it in six days. So it's interesting in uh, Martin Luther's day and age, uh, which would have been, what, 1500s, so prior to Darwin, pr prior to uh, a lot of those uh, theories of evolution, the debate actually was the opposite. And a lot of people believed God didn't create in six literal days, but he did it all in one instantaneous moment, okay? So they, they would argue that, no, God didn't need six days. And, of course, we know God didn't need six days. He could have done it instantaneously. But Scripture tells us that he didn't. And maybe that's part of his creation is for our understanding. But I love the way Martin Luther responded to those who believe God did it instantaneously and not the way Genesis 1 lays out. And I think this speaks to those who hold a different view today, whether it's billions of years or whatnot. So Martin Luther said this, but if you cannot understand how creation could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. I thought that was a pretty, you know, truthful way to say it. At the end of the day, we weren't there when God created. We have the account of how God communicated to us. As he seeks to communicate to us, it seems very clear that he created in this amount of time and so even if we can't fully wrap our minds around it we can trust what his word says and that's not to say we throw um, we're not throwing science out the window we'll, we'll get to some of this when we get more to uh, the flood because I think the flood is a better uh, understanding of why are there fossils why is there why is there different rock and things like that we're going to get to that I think scripture lays out a great case for why we see what we see so we're not checking our brain at the door, but at the end of the day, there's things we can't comprehend fully, and so we have to trust what God's Word says at the end of the day, okay? And then as we view life through the lens of Scripture, what do we find? It's consistent with what we see uh, in science, okay? All right, so we're out of time. If, um, if you have questions, let me know. You can even write them on a connection card or um, bring, write them down and bring them next week because I, I know sometimes we get going and we run out of time. So if you have questions or thoughts, uh, feel free to share them. Okay, so let's pray, and then we'll move on to our service. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of it, that we can rest our hope in it, 
that it does not go against what we observe in science, but actually confirms what we see in your word. So God, just help us to have faith, but also um, just to uh, use our reason through the lens of scripture to understand the world that you've created. And God, we just thank you for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen.